0: Welcome to DT Kane's Epic Fantasy Book Club. I'm DT Kane, author of the epic fantasy series The Far Saga and The Spoken Books Uprising. Each week, I read from one of my novels, discuss my writing process, answer your questions, and have general discussions about fantasy fiction. It's like a book club, except I do all the work for you. Find show notes, info about all my novels, and much more at DTKane.com. Here's the show. Chapter 27 After Emma spoke the spell to reconceal the door, they followed her and the other cityless down a dark corridor, lit only by the occasional torch set in a sconce along the wall. To Baz's surprise, the path led slowly downward, rather than up into the tower. The air began to cool, and Baz rubbed his arms, "'goose flesh popping up on his skin. "'After a good ten minutes of walking, "'they reached a set of doors "'that appeared to be made of steel. "'Baz gave a low whistle. "'He didn't know the first thing about smithing, "'but he was certain it was quite the feat, "'building any door out of steel, "'if for no other reason "'that he'd never seen a steel door in erstwhile. "'The libraries being what they were,' always competing with one another, definitely would have had some if they were feasible. Emma exchanged a look with Aelin, as if doubting what she was about to do. He shrugged at her. We could still kill them. Probably be doing them a mercy. How do you think she'll handle them once they've seen Undertome? Undertome? thought Baz. Emma sighed, shaking her head. Then she heaved open the steel doors and led them through. Baz rubbed at his eyes, certain what he was seeing couldn't possibly be there. But when he looked again, the incredible scene remained. Reports of Tome being an abandoned shell were apparently grossly mistaken. Beyond the doors was a multi-tiered chamber. They entered onto a middle level. Immediately in front of them was a railing of white stone that looked over a round, tile-floored area filled with rows and rows of long tables. Many of them were empty, but at least a dozen had one or more people sitting at them, each bent over parchment, quills scratching, jars of glowing elemental inks laid out before them. Looking up, showed Baz they were clearly within the foundations of the great library's tower. A balcony, like the one on which they now stood, encircled three-quarters of the wall above, with various doors and halls leading off to Baz could only guess where. There were several groups of what appeared to be teachers and small children clustered on the upper balcony. Each child had a slate, and was scratching onto it as the adults spoke. It looked like they were learning how to write. The whole space was illuminated by light streaming through holes cut in the high ceiling and vents along the walls. It didn't appear to be torchlight or even some sort of spell for perpetual glow, but rather natural daylight, though Baz couldn't fathom how that was possible this far underground. Looking back down to the rows of tables, Baz noticed that the floor did not extend all the way to the far wall. Perhaps three-quarters of the way back it stopped at a shoulder-height railing, really more of a fence, or perhaps a barricade. A single opening in the barrier's center led out to a platform that jutted into open air like a peninsula into the ocean. Light seemed to die when it reached the area, and the far edge of the peninsular ledge was covered in shadow. But enough light made it to the wall beyond the peninsula for Baz to make out what it held. Bookshelves. Endless numbers of bookshelves, each full to overflowing. They reached perhaps twenty feet up the wall, which by itself was impressive, but they also seemed to stretch down into the dark bowels of the tower, down and down, until the darkness swallowed them up. A semicircular room of books with no floor, a ceaseless pit of knowledge. However, Bass could see no obvious way to reach any of the volumes, as the peninsula clearly ended well before it reached the shelves. Someone screamed, Harbor! Immediately, the scratching of quills from below and the writing of the children on the upper level ceased. One of the teachers on the balcony above was pointing in horror at Rox's hulking form, gasps filled the chamber as eyes followed where she was pointing. A child began to cry. Emma! snapped a voice from down amongst the tables. It came from an older woman with the same cold eyes as the younger one who'd captured them. She was dressed in an inky blue robe with gold stitching at the edges, her dark hair nearly blending in with the fabric, save for stray silvery strands that flowed through it. There was no panic in her tone, only iron-clad control. Why have you brought that thing here? The woman didn't even appear to notice Baz. Rox gave a discontented rumble at being referred to as a thing, but otherwise kept his peace, razor remaining slung over his shoulder. Mother! "'Emma said, stepping out in front of Baz. "'I assure you I wouldn't have brought them here "'if not for good reason. "'Spare me your wasted words, daughter. "'They're too precious. "'Obviously you believe there is a reason "'to have brought them here. "'I asked why.' "'Emma shuffled her feet, clearing her throat "'as she glanced around at all the sets of eyes "'that were on her. "'So many. "'How could the readers not know about this place?' Or was it possible they did and just kept it a secret? The giant had this. Emma removed the vial of Aramir's blood from her satchel, holding it up for all to see. The chamber was filled with more surprised gasps, though her mother let out what Baz could only describe as a hiss. You ought to have killed them immediately for possessing such a thing. Mother, what is it with all of you trying to kill us? Baz had had enough of being ignored. He stepped back in front of Emma, not really trusting her to advocate for him and Rox. "'We're friends of Evermere. He gave us the blood freely, and,' he said sharply, holding up a hand to forestall what appeared to be more hard words from the woman who was apparently Emma's mother, "'I am not a reader, not a—what do you call them? Hoarder of words? I'm a simple speaker.' "'A poor oppressed, as you'd say.' "'Emma's mother began to speak once more, "'but Emma quickly added, "'He is marked, mother. See his forehead?' "'The woman scowled but squinted up at Baz. "'He removed his hat so she could see, "'and her expression changed slightly, becoming thoughtful. "'It made her look much older than the anger "'that had flushed her features moments before. "'Let him down here.' but not that, th- not his companion. You keep a close eye on him. Emma murmured commands to several of the other cityless to keep watch on rocks. They eyed him dubiously. The big man smiled at them through his mask as if to say, Good luck. Emma touched Baz's arm and jerked her head toward a set of stairs off to their left. The Madame Scrivener Tessa has ordered you to the sanctum floor of Undertone don't keep her waiting. Her eyes still held as much danger as they had when she'd been about to order Rox's execution, and Baz had a difficult time holding them. Her mouth had a pleasant set to it, though, her nose just slightly too large for her face. Somehow she reminded him of Liana, and he smiled at her. Her scowl deepened, and she reached out to grab his arm. Baz tossed his arms into the air in a sign of surrender. All right, all right, lead the way. She glared at him for a moment longer before relenting, expression turning more petulant than stern, like an indignant child. The Madame Scrivener did not request my presence, only yours. She honors you, though you haven't the sense to understand that. Oh, Baz said, caught a bit off guard. Well... I'm not exactly accustomed to being honored where I come from. He'd spoken with sarcasm, but Emma actually looked away from him, cheeks reddening. Of course, she said, I didn't intend to insult your plight. Just please don't keep her waiting. Baz's eyebrows rose. That had sounded very close to an apology, another thing with which he'd little experience. Don't worry about it, he said. Then... When she didn't look back to him, Baz turned and walked down the stairs she had indicated. He nearly replaced his hat on his head, but then recalled what Emma had said, that he was being honored. He kept the hat in his hand. At the bottom, he was met by two men with short swords and male tunics. They could have given rocks a fair competition in the arena of arm muscles, if not height. This way... "'one of them said in a gruff tone. "'You'll keep a respectful distance from the scrivener. "'You may refer to her as Madam Scrivener or Master Keeper.' "'The man turned on his boot heel "'and walked away without another glance at Baz. "'The other guard grunted and motioned for Baz to follow. "'It's generally sound practice not to argue with men carrying swords, "'so Baz shrugged and did as the guard indicated.' "'following the other between the rows of tables. "'The eyes of the men and women sitting at the tables "'followed him with apparently great interest "'as he approached Emma's mother, Tessa. "'The lead guard stopped a few steps from the woman. "'Baz made to step up alongside him, "'but the other guard grabbed his shoulder, "'stopping him at what was closer to shouting distance "'than reasonable conversing distance.' "'You may leave us, Palmer,' Tessa said to the lead guard. The two men shared a glance. Then Palmer said, "'As you wish, Madam Scrivener. We'll be where we always are if you need us.' She nodded to them with a curt smile as they departed, then turned her hard eyes on Baz. "'So you're a speaker?' Baz was slightly surprised that she had used that term rather than oppressed, as Aramir and the other cityless had. He nodded. Hmm, it's the late spring, so you'll be from erstwhile then. Fortune doesn't run its trials until the early autumn, and Enigma won't be back until the winter. Baz raised his eyebrows. He hadn't realized the other cities had their own versions of the trials. I have to admit, he said, I'm a bit surprised by all the people you have down here. You know what they say about Tome back in erstwhile? (laughs) Tessa barked out a brief laugh. Oh, I know, boy, that it's an abandoned shell populated only by the occasional lawless band of cityless. Bess shrugged. Pretty accurate. Must be the Dark One's own work keeping this a secret. Tessa's face, which had briefly become friendly, returned to a scowl. Do not speak of them here, she said. Her eyes flicked toward the platform at the back of the sanctum that stretched into the bookshelf-shrouded darkness. Baz held up a placating hand. "'Sorry, sorry. Didn't realize you were a superstitious lot.' Tessa continued to scowl. "'No superstition about it, boy. But we won't speak of it further. As to the secret of this place, it's no small task. But men believe what they wish to believe— and none in the triumvirate wish to think we exist. We scatter a few lesser-spoken books groundside for each of the trials, and we make sure one or two are found by each round of competitors. So long as they keep finding the morsels we leave for them, they've no reason to delve any deeper into the great library. Now it was Baz's turn to scowl. I might believe that for a majority of readers— All they care about is finding a book and getting out. But in all the years of the trials, no one has ever gotten curious? Tessa gave a grim smile and lifted a shoulder. On occasion, you're right. We've had those who looked closer than was good for them. Sadly, they tend to have unfortunate accidents before finding their way back out of Tome with news of what they've discovered. Baz grimaced. He supposed that explained why Emma had been set on killing them. It also didn't give him any warm and fuzzies about the answer to his next question. What do you intend to do with Rox and me, then? Tessa pursed her lips, clearly displeased at having been reminded of Rox's presence. That depends. If I don't like what you have to tell me, we'll kill you. Baz couldn't help but laugh. It was either that or cry. Well... "'I guess I can respect your honesty, at least.' "'Tessa gave a bemused huff. "'So if I give you a good story, you'll let us go?' "'Baz pressed. "'Let you go? Oh, no. "'You won't be leaving Tome. "'You've seen too much. Hmm. "'He'd have been a fool to have expected anything else. "'He supposed the fact that there remained a chance of living at all "'was a step in the right direction.' but he'd no desire to spend the rest of his life here. What would Tax think if he never returned? Or Liana? He told her he'd come back. I see you trying to plot already, boy. Don't waste the brain power. You're so far beneath ground, the only way you'll ever get out is if we let you. That had also occurred to Baz, and it made him want to laugh more, again, because the only other choice would be to weep in frustration. Searching for something to take the woman's mind off his attempt to escape, he said, "'It's Bastion!' "'What?' "'My name!' "'Bastion, not Boy!' She gave him a thin smile. "'And speaking of being underground,' Bass continued, "'he wanted to keep her talking. "'Maybe he'd find out something useful. "'Where is that light coming from?' He motioned at the rays of light coming down from the openings in the ceiling and walls." Mirrors, Tessa said simply. Mirrors? Yes, mirrors. Each of those openings leads up to the surface and is lined with a series of mirrors. It reflects the light down here. Oh, Baz said. That's rather smart, actually. The Enigma thinks so. He designed them. Huh. Interesting. When did... Baz trailed off, narrowing his eyes. Wait... Did you say the enigma thinks so? Prontvi Lextor has been dead for three hundred years. Tessa smiled, though the expression didn't reach her stern eyes. If you say so. What do you— Enough of your questions, boy. It's your turn to explain how a slave is here with a book pack and a reader's bodyguard. Speak, or I'll have Palmer kill you here and now. Baz stuttered. Though nothing coherent came out, and finally he forced his jaw shut. Was this woman mad? Speaking of the enigma as if he still lived? She appeared to have all her marbles in one jar, but either she wasn't serious or she wasn't sane. But whichever it was, she seemed to be the leader here, and he had no doubt those guards would run their steel through him if she gave the command. He considered lying asserting that he and Rox were runaways, tired of being slaves. But he knew that wouldn't work. One, he'd had no time to work out a story, and two, he was fairly certain Tessa would see through a lie, and that was a sure way to find himself dead. Could we maybe sit down, he said. It might take a while. She stared at him for several seconds, as if she could read his true intention if only she looked long enough. Finally, she nodded to a chair at one of the nearby tables. Baz took it gratefully. Tessa took a seat across from him, steepling her fingers and resting her chin in the angle between thumbs and pointer fingers. Baz began to speak of his childhood and tax, of his years of disuse, or perhaps misuse, by Deliritus, of the cityless who'd been captured and tortured, of the start of the trials and Marla's and Hellar's betrayal, of the worm and the dragons. He told her everything he could think of, talking for over an hour. The only part he left out was being able to read. Somehow, it seemed safer for her to assume he was just an ordinary slave, like every other speaker who'd ever been brought to Tome. Tessa remained silent for the duration of his recitation, giving no indication as to what she thought, no hints as to what might appease her and what might spell a quick end to the air going in and out of Baz's lungs. Finally, Baz reached the part where they'd been captured by Emma and fell silent. For a long time, Tessa merely glared at him from beneath lowered brows. Why? she asked, after what seemed forever. Why? Why? Why are you helping him? Oh. Baz shrugged. Like I said, it's the only chance of seeing my brother again. Besides, what else could I have done? Run off into the wilds? You could fight back against those who oppress you. (laughs) Baz laughed and shook his head. All right, lady. You sound like my brother. Yes. She nodded. Your brother sounds like someone I would like to meet. A shame about his sight. Baz grimaced, but there'd been no malice in Tessa's comment. He'd probably love it here. You really teach everyone who lives here to read? Tessa's eyes grew sad. You speak like it's such a great thing. But long ago, it was like that everywhere. Have you ever considered why the readers don't permit anyone else to read? Sure, Baz replied. They were afraid of what could happen if the illits get their hands on some spoken books. could start a revolt or something. Tessa shook her head. Perhaps that's an added benefit, but what chance does a common man have of coming across a single spoken book, much less one they could use to inflict substantial harm on the hoarders of words? Baz leaned his head to one side, considering. I see your point— But then, what do you think the true reason is? Ignorance, she said. Let a man learn to read, and he begins to think for himself. That's what the hoarders wish to avoid. An ignorant proletariat is a submissive one. Why did Actus Torchsire destroy just as many books as he confiscated during the Second Burning? Because the more knowledge there was in the world— the greater the chance that it would fall into the hands of the very people he wished to oppress. He reduced that chance to as close to zero as he could manage. Tex really would like it here,' Baz muttered, seeing clear parallels between her views and his brother's own. "'Why do you say that?' Tessa asked. Baz shook his head. "'It doesn't matter. What does is whether I've satisfied you. You still going to kill Rox and me?' No, she replied slowly. That is, not if you'll agree to stay and help us. Help you? Baz asked. Seems like you'd be putting a lot of faith in us not sticking around for a bit, then trying to escape. Tessa laughed, though it held pity rather than mirth. And where, scribes tell, would you escape, "'You're surrounded by ruins, then the weeping plains beyond, "'which is populated solely by men and women who support my cause.' "'Hmm,' Baz drummed his fingers on the table. "'She had a point. "'Maybe if they could get up to the surface once more, "'Erimer would get them away from here. "'Then again, these people seemed to know the book-dragon.' Baz might not find him nearly so helpful if this Tessa woman told Aramir that he and Rox were a threat. But there had to be some way out of this. He just had to keep her talking until she said something he could use. What is it exactly that you're doing that I'd be helping you with? Continuing the scribe's great work, Tessa said, finishing the books of power they had nearly completed before the burning. Baz compressed his lips at that, looking over Tessa's shoulder to the wall of bookshelves beyond her. "'Seems like you have plenty of books already.' Tessa followed his gaze, shaking her head. "'Once,' she said, "'that wasn't a pit, but a wondrous canyon that stretched so far into the earth you couldn't see the bottom.' not due to darkness, but due to the limits of man's ability to comprehend its vastness. The light reached down into its depths, and book dragons spent their days retrieving volumes for orators and students and researchers alike, and, as hard as it might be for you to imagine now, even for ordinary men and women who simply wished to read for pleasure. Reading... For pleasure? Baz asked. He tried to think of how much one could learn if permitted to read for the simple joy of it, for the sole purpose of acquiring knowledge. He shook his head at the profundity of the thought. It seemed a complete impossibility. Somehow that thought made him sad. Tessa nodded, seeming to grasp the thoughts going through Baz's mind. Today... We do still have some books accessible to us. Probably enough that we'd be considered the wealthiest library in all the triumvirate. But these volumes here aren't counted among them. They are lost to us, as is most of the great library. I don't understand, Baz said. I mean, I guess you don't have the book dragons any longer to help you get down there, but couldn't you build stairs or a ladder or something? That's so many books to just leave sitting. Tessa's expression was bleak. Forgive me. Opportunities to speak to someone who lives outside Tome are extremely rare, and it is easy to forget that knowledge I take for granted is totally unknown to one such as yourself. What knowledge? Baz said haltingly, suddenly unsure whether he wished to know the answer. You have likely spent your life hearing that the burning was caused by the hubris of the three scribes, that they attempted to craft books of such power that it destroyed them and tome along with them. Baz shrugged. That wasn't exactly how a conservator would have put it. Liana would probably be offended by that summation of Oration's history, actually. Baz, though, was much more agnostic when it came to the scribes. Sure. That's essentially what our histories say. Tessa nodded. Well, that is not what occurred. The scribes weren't writing books of any special power, but rather translations. Baz scrunched up his face in confusion. Translations of what? The languages of the Trinity into the common tongue, she said. The scribes had a vision, one language that could unlock all powers of the Trinity. Just one language for all to learn and have equal opportunity to the power the books hold. The equities. That's what the scribes called the spoken books they were writing in the common tongue. (laughs) Huh, Baz said. It's a nice thought, I guess, but hard to offer all in equal opportunity when only a few are born bound to the books and able to use them. Tessa shook her head. You have been blinded by the ignorance to which the readers subjugate you. What do you mean? What do you think I mean? Baz shifted uncomfortably in his seat, looking down at the tabletop. It was polished so finely that he could see his reflection looking back at him, the brand on his forehead that he'd been covering with his hat for much of the journey, standing out like a warning. Tessa was challenging everything he'd thought he'd known about the world. You mean, he said, still looking down at the table, his voice little louder than the turning of a page, that anyone can learn to call upon the book's power? Yes, Tessa said, and for the first time, her voice seemed to hold a note of compassion. Baz took a long breath. For some reason, his thoughts jumped to that foolish man who'd nearly dropped his front door on him. How pathetic that ruddy-faced man had been, unable to accomplish a task even so basic as the upkeep of his own home without seeking the help of a reader. They were told that was just how life was, that only a few were born bound to the spoken books. But if what Tessa said was true then it didn't have to be that way. All those ordinary folks in erstwhile, in all of oration, were suffering for no reason other than the reader's obsession with power and the oppression that went along with it. But how? he asked. Wouldn't people naturally figure it out? How would they do that? Tessa asked. Before the burning, you would have been considered one of the lucky ones— born already with a proclivity for the power of the elements held in the spoken books. For all others, attuning with the elements was a process that took years of arduous study. Few ever attained sufficient skill to be called orators, but it was possible. But now, none save the readers have access to the books, and they have spent so long perpetuating the lie that now even most of them believe it so they never undertake the study necessary to become bound. Most of them? Tessa shrugged. Perhaps all, but it seems unlikely to me. Actus Torchsire invented the lie to secure power for himself and his close allies. I'd be surprised if those families who were originally close to him have completely forgotten their fabrication, but I don't know for certain. Baz's mouth worked wordlessly. Was it possible Duke Octavenal actually knew this secret? Possible even that Deliritus knew it? No, Baz wouldn't believe that. The Duke, maybe, but Deliritus's belief in the rigid structure of society was too genuine for him to be lying. Still, even if there remained no one living who remembered the original lie, this was an unspeakable indignity. It was one thing to know yourself below others and to think that was simply how things needed to be. It was another entirely to know that your subjugation rested upon a fabricated foundation. A rage began to boil in his very soul. But why should he be surprised? He'd always known readers were, on the whole, terrible people. And so what if their power was based on lies? The fact was, the power was theirs. This new knowledge wouldn't suddenly liberate speakers and illits from their oppression. Tessa was watching him intently, undoubtedly guessing at the thoughts going through his mind. Baz tried to keep his face blank. Perhaps she had good intentions, but she was trying to manipulate him, to get him to side with her. In Baz's view, that wasn't a whole lot better than what the readers did to him. Either way... He was being robbed of the freedom to make informed decisions for himself. That still doesn't explain why you can't use any of the books over there, Baz said, motioning back toward the gloomy pit of shelves. Tessa frowned, likely disappointed that he wasn't showing more obvious outrage at the staggering revelation she'd just supplied to him. As I said, she replied, the burning wasn't the scribe's fault— They had nearly completed their translations, an effort that would have sowed the seeds of knowledge and opportunity throughout the land. That's when they attacked. She spoke with such subdued trepidation that Baz laughed, thinking she must be joking. But when that cold glare returned to her eyes, he abruptly stopped. They? Tessa took a deep breath. "'The Dark Ones.' (laughs) Baz had to bite his lip to stop from laughing again, "'though Tessa clearly noticed the gleam in his eye as her glare deepened. "'I can't make you believe, but it is the truth. "'Perhaps the scribes were partly to blame, "'though I don't think they could have foreseen the consequences of their actions.' The power they drew to create their translations weakened the barrier between our world and the elsewhere beyond, the realm of the Dark Ones. The burning was the only way to stop them from breaking into the mortal realm. They are trapped, but the weakening of the border remains. Tessa looked back over her shoulder. Baz looked at her incredulously. You're saying that the Dark Ones are trapped in that pit? I've seen what happens when one walks out onto that platform, Tessa said. Spoken by anyone else, Baz almost certainly would have rolled his eyes and said something full of sarcasm. But Tessa looked so tired and concerned when she spoke that Baz found he couldn't entirely disregard her. Let's say I believe you... He finally replied, which, let's be clear, I'm not saying I do. But if I did, then why in the name of the scribes would you be trying to recreate the books that caused such calamity? Tessa nodded, still looking drained. A fair question, but we think the scribe's mistake was simply working too fast, pulling too much power all at once. Nearly all their work was lost in the burning. My ancestors had to begin from scratch to reproduce it. and It has taken us centuries to get even close to where the scribes were after only a few years. There have been no indications of the seals the scribes put in place weakening in all that time. Indeed, so long as no one passes that barrier, there is no indication at all that anything was ever amiss. Well, save for the ruin above. Once again, Baz glanced over to the platform that stretched out into the pit of books. The shoulder-height railing separated the sanctum from most of the pit, but he noted once more the unobstructed gap in it that would permit anyone to simply walk out onto the peninsula. Why don't you just seal it? We have tried many times— Any materials you place in the void simply, well, it's difficult to explain if you haven't seen it, but suffice it to say, they just vanish after a few hours. I like to think of it now as a reminder of the consequences of failure and the import of the work we carry on here. Baz considered the platform for several more seconds, then rested his forehead in one hand, rubbing above his eyes. It all seemed too incredible to even entertain, but Tessa sounded so sincere. Mother! Emma's voice carried down from the balcony above them. Not now, daughter, Tessa snapped. Mother! Emma's voice repeated, shrill and full of urgency. The tone caused Baz to turn and look toward the sound. He nearly fell out of his chair. Emma was up against the balcony railing, a harbor's razor to her neck. At first, he thought rocks had gone mad. But it wasn't rocks holding the weapon to Emma's throat. It was Ryle, which could only mean... Well, well, well. Marla's voice chilled Baz's bones as she came up to the railing beside Ryle and Emma. What have we stumbled upon to hear? Alright, welcome back to D.D. Kane's Epic Fantasy Book Club. Today is June 12th, 2022. As I record this, this is episode number 22. Uh, it's really good to be back uh, with all of you. I know you've had a new episode each week, but for me it's been about three weeks since I sat down to record a conversation with all of you since I was away in Europe, and had pre-recorded some episodes, uh, so good to be with all of you once <clears throat> more. Um, thanks for all the downloads while I was away. I was definitely glad I posted all those episodes, because it seems like lots of you out there are, are eager for, por- for podcast episodes, so uh, thanks for that, and uh, if you are enjoying the show, uh, consider leaving a, uh, a quick review on uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever else You may be listening to this. Um, Just real quick, uh, the personal update, as we always start with, I did uh, had a blast in Europe, as I'm sure you uh, might (laughs) expect, and uh, I could probably talk to you all about it for the remainder of the episode here, but um, I am aware this is not a travel podcast, so uh, I'll limit myself to just uh, a couple highlights from each of the three countries that I went to. So if you're planning a vacation, and want to hit Ireland, Paris, and or Brussels, uh, here is what I would recommend. And um, if you have any more detailed questions, feel free to shoot me an email. I would be happy to discuss uh, any of these locales with you in more detail. Uh, So in Ireland, um, you'll most likely start in Dublin, and as stereotypical... As it may sound, the Guinness Storehouse tour uh, is definitely a highlight, particularly the Gravity Bar, which is uh, at the very top of the storehouse. So you don't really tour the brewery uh, at Guinness. I don't. Uh, I, I haven't looked into this extensively, but I don't. I don't think they actually give tours of the production facility. Uh, the storehouse is more like a Guinness museum. <laughs> it's it's seven stories tall, um, and at the very top there is. <clears throat> And this is the se- on the 7th floor, which is the very top of it. There is a, a bar called the Gravity Bar, which is a play on some beer-making terminology. We don't need to get into that. Um, but it has 360-degree views of the city of Dublin uh, up there, so it's a really awesome place <coughs> to have a beer. A pint is included with your admission to the storehouse, so definitely got to go up there and check it out. Even if you uh, are not a beer drinker, uh, it is worth going up there just to see the views and there aren't that many tall buildings in Dublin so this is really one of like the tallest structures so you really get unobstructed views all the way around it's it's really <clears throat> pretty awesome i think it's like 20 euro or something to get into the into the storehouse uh definitely worth it if i lived in dublin i would consider paying that just uh for the privilege to go up there and uh, have a few drinks so uh it's that neat uh other than that the, the gap of Dunlo. In Killarney National Park, which is on the Ring of Kerry, some of you may have, have heard of that. That's one of the famous scenic drives um, in Ireland. But the Gap of is—it's like a seven-seven mile path through like a mountain pass between uh, two mountains, um, and it's really, really the only way you can access it is to uh, walk or take a horse cart. So it's like you, you sit in a little cart being pulled by a horse. You're like right in there with the driver sitting with you. And it's all these local guys who have really done it for their whole lives. So uh, it's quite the experience, and it's really kind of uh, uh, breathtaking uh, to behold. So uh, definitely, definitely recommend that as well. Um, if you subscribe to the newsletter, uh, I will be <clears throat> sharing some photos of the trip. Um, and you can check those out. I, I think I shared a photo of, of the Gap of in the in the newsletter this week. Uh, com slash email dash sign up if you're interested or just go to dtkane.com and there's a there's a form right there. You can't miss it. Uh, moving on to Paris. So we spent eight days in Ireland. We took my father-in-law, me and my wife took my, uh, her father and my father-in-law there for his 60th birthday, and then he went home. Uh, he and his wife went home, and Mrs. Kane and I continued on to Paris for a couple of days. Uh, there, um, again, stereotypical, but visit the Eiffel Tower. It is really cool in person. Definitely walk around, walk around it, and then uh, you can walk across the river, the Seine, and there's like a big park on the other side there where you can get additional awesome views. Uh, of it takes lot take lots of photos. If you if you uh, have a significant other, make sure you get a photo uh, kissing <laughs> with the Eiffel Tower in the background. Um, and then I think my second thing would be just to get a bottle of wine and a sweet treat at an outdoor cafe there. Um, I, lo- I love I love I was only there for two days, but I can already say I love the outdoor cafe culture there. There's like one on every street corner the little two-person tables where you can just sit and, and watch the traffic and the people going by uh on the street and obviously the food and wine there are exceptional so highly recommend um I went to a couple cafes there uh Les Nemours and Café Blanc those are both near the Louvre um I think you would enjoy either of those Uh, We drank mostly French rosés while we were over there, and they were quite good. Uh, If you're just looking for pastries, I can also recommend Tartine Bakery or Boulangerie, which is the French word for bakery. That's a couple blocks from the Louvre. Or Cafe Liberté, which is uh, in the Latin Quarter, which is uh, across the river from where uh, the Louvre uh, is. So there you go. And then finally, we went to Brussels for a couple days. Uh, the beer there was awesome. Uh, if you need any beer recommendations, happy to, happy to give those to you. But my two highlights there are the Atomium, which, uh, I wasn't really familiar with, uh, before I was researching what to do in Brussels. But it's kind of like the Eiffel Tower of Belgium. That's what they call it. Um, they built it for the World's Fair back in 1958. I believe, and, uh, it's cool, it's this really tall, several hundred foot tall, um, sculpture of a, uh, atom that you can go inside, it's made of aluminum, thus atomium, um, you can go inside, and you can take an elevator all the way to the top and see, uh, 360 degree views of Brussels and the surrounding area, uh, and then there's also, so, you know, there's the, uh, they're protons and neutrons and I don't know I'm not very good at science but you know it's got a bunch of spheres um, so you go all the way to the top and then you go back down and then you kind of go up again and there's like some exhibition halls in it where they have some art exhibits um, that were cool and interesting to look at so definitely uh, worth a trip over to the Atomium in Brussels uh, and then of course you need to get your Belgian waffle while you're over there, uh, the Liege waffles are the ones uh, that I like. They're kind of uh, they're shaped more like a like a crescent than a rectangle. They've got you know the special pearl sugar in them that melts when they're cooked. Uh, mm-hmm. Get it with some dark chocolate sauce over them, uh, and you will not be sorry. My wife and I went to Le uh, Fou- uh I don't know. I tried to learn a little French over over there but I'm not sure about that but it's it's the waffle place right next to the mannequin piss which is the famous statue of the the little boy peeing <laughs> that's in Brussels uh, and this place is right around the corner from it alright so there you go probably uh, probably already went on <laughs> for too long about that but it was a great trip um, and I hope you enjoyed reliving uh, a few minutes of it with me anyway but like I said uh, happy to dispense any travel advice if anyone is, uh, is interested or at least, uh, travel experiences. Um, obviously not a travel agent over here. <laughs> uh, real quick on the writing front. Uh, it's been a busy week. Uh, pro tip, don't schedule a, uh, novel release for, uh, you know, 12 days after you get back from vacation. <laughs> it's a good recipe for a, a frantic week when you get back. Um, but I've been, uh, diligently working on getting Declaimer's Flight ready for publication and it will be ready. It comes out uh, on June seventeenth, twenty twenty two, so just uh five days from when I'm recording this. Uh you can still get your pre order in if you want. Uh to be sure you're one of the first people to read it. And uh, you know, the more pre orders I get, uh that, you know, that helps out the launch day success. So if you think you're gonna read it anyway, uh consider getting a pre order in. I will uh Try to remember to drop a uh, link to the pre order in the show notes here. Okay, so let's get into it. Chapter 27, um, definitely one of our longer chapters, so a whole lot to talk about <clears throat> here. Let me get a sip of tea uh, before we launch in. <clears throat> All right, great. So, Undertone, our first heading here. So just to reset the scene, recall in the last chapter, Emma was about Emma, the city leader, at least the leader of the the band of city that Baz and Rox were following. Uh, They catch Baz and Rox. She was about to have Rox executed. And then uh, they reveal the dragon blood that Aramir gave them. And um, that convinced them—well, that and figuring out that Baz was not actually a reader— convinced them that they need to bring them to their actual leader— uh, through this hidden door that Emma revealed, so she takes them down there. It's a long corridor that descends downwards, uh, and she mentions they're going to Undertome. Well, oh, what the heck? What the heck is that? Well, we are uh, we are about to find out and uh, have an answer for where all the uh, all the cityless are living here in Tome. Uh, there is a whole uh, little city here beneath the Great Library. Who <laughs> who knew? Apparently, not any of the readers, right? Uh, as Baz says, reports of Tome being an abandoned shell were apparently grossly mistaken. So, uh, yes, there's a whole hidden society down here. Uh, our heroes, just to set the scene here, uh, a little, our heroes enter into the middle of a three-tiered chamber. They're on a, a stone balcony, white stone balcony, overlooking a lower level that's full of rows of long tables, and in some of them there were people sitting writing bent over parchment with jars of glowing elemental ink. Uh, And then up above there appear to be living quarters and another balcony that encircles much of the space where it appears groups of young children uh, are being taught how to write. So this is uh, pretty shocking, right? (laughs) Based on what we know of uh, the rest of society in Oration. Uh, there appears to be a whole society down here that doesn't abide by the typical separation of powers, the division between readers and speakers. Now it really seems that the cityless who was caught back in the beginning. Remember, remember him the the torture scene <clears throat> where he tried to kill Gloritus at the end, and Baz saved him. Um, you know that guy wasn't an aberration, right? You know they thought it was such a big deal that he knew how to how to read, but. Uh, it looks like everyone down here in Undertome is, is taught how to read and write, so uh, um, grand implications here for the whole society, if this secret gets out, it would seem. Um, but despite all of that, and none of that's really the defining feature of the space, right? Uh, it's this this peninsula-type walkway that extends past a barrier at the, uh, the far end of the lower level of the chamber. It's... Uh, jutting jutting out into darkness, it leads out into this dark pit where, uh, as Baz tells us, light seems to die. Uh, and the pit is lined with countless bookshelves. In fact, why don't we just take a look at Baz's description here. <clears throat> bookshelves. Endless numbers of bookshelves, each full to overflowing. They reached perhaps 20 feet up the wall, which by itself was impressive. But they also seemed to stretch down into the dark bowels of the tower, down and down until the darkness swallowed them up, a semicircular room of books with no floor, a ceaseless pit of knowledge. However, Baz could see no obvious way to reach any of the volumes as the peninsula as the peninsula clearly ended well before it reached the shelves. All right, so next, um, after Baz takes that all in, we are introduced to the Madam Scrivener, Tessa, um, who turns out to be the true leader of Undertome, uh, and also Emma's mother. We see the the familial resemblance here, or at least Baz tells us we see it. Um, And we can certainly see, too, where Emma got some of her stern characteristics, as obviously her mother is a uh, a hard woman here. She is... uh, you know she's upset, but not frantic, right? When you know everyone else kind of freaks out when they see when they see rocks, and you know she's just pissed, right? You know what is Emma doing, bringing these <laughs> bringing these people uh, down here? You know Tessa seems to make the same initial assumption as her daughter did that um, <clears throat> Baz is a reader, but uh, you know Baz <laughs> butts in in his characteristic way, right? Which uh, Prompts Tessa to uh, order him down to the sanctum floor where she is overseeing the scriveners who are uh, writing at the tables. Uh, you know, what is it they're working on down there? By the way, remember they're writing with elemental ink. Um, you know, are they making books? Geez, how big would that be? Because um, as we've seen throughout the rest of the uh, story so far, no one makes new books, right? So, what are they using that elemental ink down there for? Um, right. Okay. Um, I think that's better. A little headphone trouble there. Uh. Okay, so the first thing that Baz discusses with Tessa is how they've kept Undertome's secret for so long. You know, uh, apparently they've been playing the readers for quite a long time here. This settlement down here is not new. Um, they've got a whole system here. They plant uh, purposefully... Uh, a few spoken books above ground each year, so the trials participants have something to find and no reason to go snooping, snooping around uh, the ruins. In fact, Tessa kind of implies that they, they make sure a couple of the books are found, right? <laughs> so uh, actively, actively making sure the trials participants uh, find books uh, and don't go snooping around uh, the ruins where they might find the secret entrance to Undertome. Um, as Tessa tells us, men believe what they wish to believe and none in the triumvirate wish to think we exist. You know, that helps her keep the secret. You know, people don't want there to be a secret society down here and she gives them no reason to think uh, no reason to think uh, that there is one. Which I guess is a, uh, you know, this is kind of a true idea, right? Confirmation bias, that's a real thing where we tend to pay closer attention to evidence that supports our beliefs. Than evidence that contradicts them, um, you know. Ev- Tessa is playing that up with the readers here. No one wants to think there's a whole city of cusses living beneath Tome, and uh, she is making sure no one has any reason to think to contradict that belief. Uh, of course, though, <laughs> when Bass presses her, that you know, someone must get curious every once in a while, right? You know, Tessa acknowledges that does happen, uh, but of course, anyone who gets too curious. They seem to have this strange habit of suffering unfortunate accidents before they can leave Tome. Uh, so, uh, so it seems at least some of the deaths during the Actus trials are attributable to this hidden underground society, ensuring its secret uh, is kept safe. Right. So um, that plays right in. Uh, <laughs> you know, well, what does this mean for Bass? Um, you know, well, what about me? Are you gonna let me go? Uh, no, <laughs> you've seen too much. Uh, right. Uh, this is where we get to the meat uh, of Baz and Tessa's discussion. She orders Baz, uh, to tell his story. Um, but you know, regardless of whatever he says in the story, Tessa says he isn't going anywhere because, again, like I said, he he's seen Undertome. She can't risk the secret getting out which, um, obviously, this is a problem for Baz. He needs to find this book and get back to Deliritus uh, so he can ultimately get back to Erstwhile and his brother. Um, so Baz's wheels are kind of turning, but he's coming up empty so far on how he's going to get out of this, so he sees really no alternative but to tell Tessa his story, uh, which he does from beginning to end, maybe more than Tessa bargained for, right? Baz says he, he talks he tells her for over an hour, you know, starting back with... Uh, tax being blinded. So what was Baz like eight when that happened? So gives Tessa the life story here. Uh, the only thing he leaves out is that he knows how to read. Um, you know, Baz, we've obviously seen that he has uh, some trust issues. Yeah, probably justifiably so, but certainly has some trust issues. Uh, and he is not willing to put complete trust in this stranger yet, especially a stranger who intends to keep him as a prisoner here uh, in undertone. Uh but whether Baz uh overexplained or not, Tessa remains silent throughout his recitation. Uh and then interesting, right? The after everything that Baz tells her, this kind of fantastic story leading up to this point, the one thing she keys on is, you know, why are you helping a reader? <laughs> yeah, after everything, you know, kind of driving home this big conflict that Baz has been having throughout the novel. You know, and obviously, this society beneath tome does not view the readers as the rightful leaders of society, right? And that rhymed just now. That was not intentional. Uh, Tessa Tesla shows obvious disdain for the readers. You know, fight back against those who oppress you, Bastion. Uh, Baz, of course, rolls his eyes. You sound like my brother. <laughs> what do you want me? What do you want me to do? I'm just a lowly slave. <laughs> um. So their conversation proceeds, uh, you know, you really teach everyone who lives down here to read, Tessa? Uh, you know, and Tessa becomes sad, kind of, or at least her eyes get sad, right, uh, when Baz asks this. Uh, you know, and this kind of, it drives home how messed up oration society is, right? You know, how truly evil it is to deny the ability to read to most, uh, most others. You know, as she says, uh, teaching others to read shouldn't be a quote great thing. It it ought to just be like that everywhere. Um, and you know why? You know, she goes on. You know why the readers do that, Bastian? Why do you why do you think they prevent others from from learning to read? You know, and like, well, it's you know to prevent them from casting spells, right? Uh, you know that's not Tessa's opinion, though. You know, most common men wouldn't have access to spoken books anyway. So what does it matter if they know how to read? They're not going to have spells. Um, No, Tessa says denying the ability to read creates ignorance. Uh, You know, it's a vehicle of oppression. You know, if people can't read, they can't really think for themselves. And if they can't think for themselves, well, they are just going to submit to the will of the ruling class. As she says, an ignorant proletariat is a submissive one. Um, I might have been reading 1984 by George Orwell when I came up with that line. Uh, Sounds a little bit Orwellian, but it's really true. um, Right? You know, much of our knowledge transfer these days comes from the written word, and if people didn't know how to read, it would certainly be much harder to exchange uh, ideas and opinions. So there is definitely, uh, you know, evil power here in not letting others learn how to read, um, okay, I guess I said a couple minutes ago we got into the meat of Baz and Tessa's discussion, but now I think, um, now I think we're really, you know, we're getting into the juicy parts of the filet mignon of their discussion, (laughs) if you will, uh, you know, Baz has told his story now, he asks Tessa whether she still intends to kill him in rocks, um, She says, no, I'm not going to let you go either, though. You'll have to agree to stay and uh, help us out down here. Well, help them with what, exactly? Um, The Scribes' great work, she says. Uh, Apparently, so now we learn what these other people are writing down here at the long tables in the Sanctum. They're finishing the books of power the Scribes began during the burning uh, now let's, uh, let's pause here for a moment. Recall back at the beginning of part two, we get kind of uh, the conservator. He tells us uh, that the scribes have been working on books that only a select few would be able to read, so that only those who truly deserved the ability to call power from the spoken books could wield it. So the scribes were basically working on books that would kind of consolidate and limit the people Um, who could read from the books, which, uh, interestingly, uh, that supports kind of the structure of society now, right? Uh, How coincidental, or how convenient for the readers that that story matches up. Um, But that's not what the scribes were doing, according to Tessa. Uh, No, she says they were making translations. Of course, best like, translations of what? (laughs) Uh, And uh, she tells them translations of the languages of the Trinity into the common tongue, uh, so everyone could learn to draw power from books. Uh, so she's saying they were doing the exact opposite of what society has taught. Um, the scribes weren't trying to limit power but expand it to everyone. <clears throat> Getting kind of a big lie here. Um, you know, but Baz, uh, Baz initially is not impressed by this, right? Because he's like, well, what's the point of that if only certain people are born bound to the books? Um, you know, even if they can read, not everyone's going to be able to call forth their power. And then, uh, so now Tessa drops the, uh, the first big bomb here, uh, of the chapter. You know, that was, uh, uh I didn't want to explode right into the mic there, but boom! <laughs> uh, Aramir already foreshadowed this for us a few chapters ago, but here's confirmation. It's all a big lie. Uh, anyone can learn to drop power from the books. Um, Wow. I know I just kind of, like, broke the magic system there, right? But that's what Tessa's Tessa's telling us. Um, You know, the reader's power is really based on this lie that only some people uh, are able to draw power. Now, it is true that some are born more naturally gifted. They're able to draw the power without much training. So uh, these are the people who become the speakers, right? You know, we haven't really gotten into how someone is tested as to whether they're going to be a speaker uh, or not but apparently some are born with the ability to just draw the power uh, but most have to study and work at it for a long time um, and that's why this lie has you know they've been able to keep it hidden for so long right because you know the people with the natural ability well they're enslaved for are turn into speakers and then you know no one else you know if they fail that test or i guess i guess pass that test right you don't It's a pass not being able (laughs) to draw power from the books because otherwise you become a slave. Um, But if you you know if you prove you're not a speaker when you take that test, then well you're not studying and working to try to draw power from the books. So uh, no one ever learns how to do it. So this lie kind of just perpetuates uh, itself. you know, and as Tessa tells us this was it was created originally by Delirius's ancestor. Remember, Actus Torchsire, the guy that trials are named after. Uh he created this lie to consolidate power among his allies. And uh now it's been uh you know, now it's been told for so long that even most readers uh believe it for the truth. And uh, you know, Baz is Baz is trying not to show his surprise to Tessa here a little bit. The implications you know, uh, if Bass could reveal this secret, what well, you know, what would the consequences be? Just think of the anger in the masses, um, learning that their whole society is based on this lie. And uh, then what about here in Undertome? So this would imply, uh, geez, they know this secret, so they're training doesn't mean everyone down in Undertome can draw power from books. You know, geez, they could raise an army, potentially, that's capable of challenging the Triumvirate cities. You know, potentially. We don't know how many people are down here, but... You know, you think even a relatively small group, if everyone could could read, um, you know, just imagine a whole society that isn't dependent on reading spells to other people before they cast them, uh, getting into a battle with readers who have to work in pairs, with their speakers. You can certainly certainly see the advantage there. So things are things are slowly being turned on their heads <coughs> here. Um, and if that's not bad enough, then uh, you know that's really. That revelation is really small potatoes when it comes to the next bomb Tessa drops, right? Boom. You know, boom, boom. <laughs> you know, the two explosions here. Tessa seems to believe, uh, you know, as, as they're talking, right, you know, Tessa seems, she seems to at least be implying that they don't really have that many books here in Undertome, and Baz is like, you know, he's looking over at all these shelves, and then finally he's like, uh infinite shelves over here what are you talking about <laughs> um you know well Tessa's like well you know we we've got some books down here we'd probably be the wealthiest library in oration if we if we were considered a library but uh, all these books here well they are they're lost to us she says and why are they lost well uh you know originally she you know she initially seems to forget that baz doesn't doesn't know why um, but then she's like, oh, well, you're an outsider. Of course you don't know. Uh, it's because the Dark Ones are imprisoned in that dark pit over there. <laughs> um, wow. So, you know, the Dark Ones, we've only really heard them referenced in passing up to this point, but obviously they're they're kind of like these mythical demons we've seen people kind of mutter and, and curse about. Um, but Tessa tells us here, you know, they're the ones who caused the burning, apparently, uh, the scribes drew so much power trying to create their translations that uh, they weakened the barrier between this world and the elsewhere, which is sort of like this world's version of hell, right? And that permitted the dark ones to attack. Um, and and uh, I don't know, maybe this kind of comes out of nowhere, but I think uh, uh, you know the prologue, the prologue set this up, Right, So we finally see what Pront Veluxdor was actually up to in the prologue. He was descending the tower at the Great Library to imprison the Dark Ones who he'd inadvertently released on the world uh, by attempting to create these new spoken books. Remember, he says he's going down to imprison his foes um, in shadow, right? So that's apparently what he did. He's imprisoned them in the darkness down here in the bowels uh, of the Great Library. Of course, Baz is uh, incredulous, as usual, when he's told something that goes against what he believes, Um, but he doesn't really have much time to question Tessa um, at this point, because Emma shouts for her mother from back up on the balcony. Remember, we left her up there at the beginning of the chapter. Uh, Tessa's annoyed at the interruption, but uh, we quickly see that this is more than just a daughter... Uh, bothering her mother, right? Uh, because Baz looks up there. There's a razor to Emma's throat. Uh, you know, first a second, it's like, well, did Rox go mad? He's just attacking Emma now. But no, it's not Rox's razor. It's Ryle's razor. And uh, you know, I would forgive you if you forget who Ryle is. But that is Marla's harbor, and uh, Marla is there too. She has found Undertone. We are finally reunited with the with the sinister, the sinister speaker from. Or, excuse me, the sinister reader from Colnar Library. Uh, we haven't seen her since she broke Delirtis' leg back towards the beginning of Part 2. And that's where we leave it for this week. Just a quick side note. Uh, uh, did you catch there how uh, book dragons or They were essentially librarians before the Burning, right? You know, Tessa mentions that they spent their days uh, retrieving volumes from the vast pit of books which, uh, you know, I guess I guess that makes sense, right? Remember back in the prologue, again, Aramir was rescuing books. Um, you know, and Tessa also notes how people back before the burning, they used to read for pleasure. You know, Baz is kind of dumbstruck by that, which, again, that's kind of sad, right? You know, reading for pleasure, not even something he's ever contemplated before. Jeez, um, can you imagine being prohibited from reading for the pure joy of it? You know, I assume most of you listening to the podcast are avid readers, so uh, certainly certainly a travesty if I've ever heard of one. So there you go. Uh, the footnotes to the analysis there. And that will do it. So next week's homework, uh, we'll be reading Chapter 28, which is the climax of the novel. Uh, how will Baz overcome Marla's unexpected appearance at Undertone? Well, tune in next week to find out um and that means all we have left is our quote of the week and uh fittingly we've got an Irish author here this week uh this one comes from Oscar Wilde who is the author of The Picture of Dorian Gray among many other things but I'd say Dorian Gray is uh is fantasy right it's certainly not uh, something that can happen in real life um so I'm, I'm counting this as a fantasy quote, so there you go, and it fits into my uh, recent Irish vacation. Uh, if you are a fan, or, well, I assume you're a fan if you're a newsletter subscriber, but uh, I guess you don't have to be. But if you're a newsletter subscriber, you saw my photo accompanying this quote in this week's newsletter of the statue of Mr. Wilde that's in Marion Square Park in Dublin. Um, And the quote is, the books that the world calls immoral are books that show the world its own shame. Um, Then I did write a little blurb about this as I do with all of the quotes now. Um, And it goes something like this. Most people don't like discomfort. It's just so uncomfortable. And if you go through life always picking the easy path, you might very well find comfort. That's not so bad. Uh, Ask yourself, though, do you really want comfort? Or do you want to climb that mountain or live abroad or, gasp, write your novel? At the end of your days, will you be glad you played it safe? Or will you regret not gritting your teeth and striving for your dreams? There you go. That's this week's little philosophy essay. Um, if you have any favorite fantasy quotes, go ahead and share them with me. DT Kane, at dot And, um, I may feature your quote and write a little essay about it in a future, a future episode, and newsletter. So send those my way. Um, and then just closing up again, uh, five days until the claimers flight comes out. You can get your, get your pre-orders in, uh, If you like, it's on all the major online retailers, and I'll try to leave a link uh, in the show notes for that as well. And then was there something else? Uh, Oh, just uh, another one. Uh, Like I said, I've seen lots of you doing downloads lately, so thank you for that. I appreciate all the support. And uh, if you do have a moment or two, consider dropping a quick review on iTunes, Spotify, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, wherever you're listening to this, um, it does it does help me out, get me some more visibility. So, thanks for that, and thanks for listening. Uh, and until next time, this has been D.T. Kane's Epic Fantasy Book Club. Why have you brought that thing here? The woman d- ah. <clears throat> quotation marks mean someone isn't speaking anymore. Pro tip. Tessa grave a oh, Tessa grave a grim smile. That's actually that would have been a good pun, but that's not what it says. <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> Chapter 27-8. It's the final countdown. Alright, better save my voice for the reading here. Thanks for listening to DT Kane's Epic Fantasy Book Club. If you liked today's episode please consider rating and reviewing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're watching on YouTube, give this video a thumbs up if you liked it and hit that subscribe button and the bell so you get notified whenever new episodes become available. If you'd like to listen to back episodes or review the show notes, visit dtkane.com slash podcast. DT Kane's novels are available for purchase at most major online retailers, or you can purchase directly from his website at www.dtkane.com books. You can receive a free short story and sign up for D.T. Kane's mailing list at dtkane.com email dash signup. If you'd like to connect, you can find D.T. Kane on Facebook at D.T. Kane Author or Twitter at D.T. Kane Author or send D.T. Kane an email at dtkane at dtcane.com. See you next week!